Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Glad you're here. Man, it took me a lot longer to release a new episode than I planned when I released the last one. It's been a pretty crazy, uh, busy few past weeks in Cresto, and I think I sort of naively expected to like arrive and unpack and have everything feel super chill and um, relaxing right away. Uh, and yeah, it's taken a little bit longer than that. Um, lots of unpacking, lots of settling, lots of sort of like meeting people and going around town. Um, one thing that I'm really excited about that I did in the past few weeks is that I secured a spot here in Crestone uh, in Colorado to teach contact beyond contact classes over the winter which I'm really excited about and feels kind of intimidating for various reasons. Um, It feels like such a different medium to hold space for people in person and um, provide like a comfortable and chill enough space so that people feel comfortable not only dancing and moving their bodies, but then also sort of talking about it and, um, you know, sharing openly about how it felt to them to, to really, yeah, feel into their bodies and how their bodies interact with others. It feels like while I might be sort of talking about the same things and engaging in some of some of the same themes, doing so on the podcast is a lot easier, I think, uh, than doing that in person. Um, and so it's a bit intimidating and new territory for me, but I'm really stoked about it and I feel I feel really good about it. I feel really sort of like certain and aligned that this is what I want to be doing. So if you happen to be anywhere near Crestone, Colorado over the winter, the first two classes that I'm teaching are going to be December 8th and 15th at 4 p.m. Mountain Time. And you can reach out to me if you're going to be anywhere near here and like to attend and I can share the address with you. And then we're going to pick up uh, doing regular classes in January. So if you can't make it to the two ones in December, you can try again in the new year. Speaking of being really sure and certain and confident about something, um, I've been thinking a lot recently about creativity and how sort of like out of control we are around how our creativity is expressed, which doesn't mean that we can't force it or do something just because we feel like we need to, or we have to put something out or we have to be consistent. But I've been thinking about Like, what would it be like if I could actually respect uh, how my creativity emerges and flows naturally instead of trying to control it? 
And I, it's such an interesting test for me because I think about it constantly in regard to this podcast. And I always have the intention of releasing podcasts on a weekly basis. Um, and yet, especially recently, it's been more like every few weeks. Um, and I feel like I, this project has always really helped me work through my perfectionism and my uh, tendency to be neurotic and a control freak around my projects and around what I'm putting out and having everything look perfectly and come out perfectly and do it when I say I'm going to do it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I really appreciate that this project is allowing me to reflect on it, but it continues to be a reflection for me. Um, and after four years of having this project and intentionally creating it as a way to work through and transform some of my earlier perfectionist tendencies. Um, it's just amazing how long this stuff takes, I guess, is my point. Um, and four years later, I still feel like I'm struggling. I'm still, you know, constantly wondering, like, am I being lazy or am I just being true to myself? Um, and I find this, this is like a question that I keep asking myself and that I've asked, I've been asking myself a lot recently too. And I feel like a lot of people are having these thoughts around like the importance of slowing down and the importance of self-care right now. And I'm feeling that too. Like I know that taking my time and taking care of myself are non-negotiables at this point. Um, but even though I know that and feel like, like I feel that in my gut, I know that to be true and I will do that. It's still amazing to me how difficult it is sometimes. And I've been feeling it really severely over the past few weeks and I've just tried to like respect it and give it more attention maybe than they normally do. Um, because there've been other things that I've been focused on, right? Like planning the CBC classes. I've been learning how to create 3D models in order to design our future house. Uh, that was my entire day yesterday. I just feel like what would it look like and what would it feel like for me to not only sort of like follow the scent of my desire as far as creativity goes, like what would it be like to not only follow it and respect it, but also feel good about that? Like what would it feel like to feel good every day about what we've done or what we've accomplished. Some days I feel like that, um, but not all days. And I've been finding that to be a very interesting reflection uh, for myself recently. There are so many other things that I have been thinking about and want to talk about. I'd even like to expand on this topic a little bit more as far as creativity is concerned. So I think I might dedicate a solo podcast to doing that. I have a few different things that I would like to ramble on about that maybe you'd like to listen to me ramble on about. Um, but one thing that I will mention sort of in honor of and in preparation of our conversation, of the conversation that you're going to hear today, the conversation that you're going to hear today is very much about, well, I guess it's about both the personal and the collective, but in many ways it's about redesigning spaces and redesigning cities and imagining what these spaces could look like in the future. And so for the most part, we're talking about collectives, maybe small collectives um, in addition to big collectives and maybe the ways in which we might interact with those collectives as an individual and feel inspired by them or inspired to create something within them. Uh, but for the most part, it's a more sort of broad conversation. And as I was re-listening to the conversation and as I was sort of writing up the description, 
and pulling quotes, I realized how parallel so many of the things Johanna spoke about were, could be applied to what I'm feeling in my personal life. And mainly this is about like having the courage to envision what a different future could be like, or having the bravery to consider what a future narrative or a future story might look like. And in order to do that, in the conversation that you'll hear today, we spoke a lot about, again, cities and design and architecture and the physical space that we take up. And in order to feel inspired to create new spaces, um, regenerative spaces, spaces that actually work with our environment and support the planet as much as they support us, in order to do that fully and responsibly, we have to incorporate the grief and the hardship and the disappointments and the embracing of the fact that ultimately we don't really have any control, right? Like in order to be inspired enough to imagine or create something in the future, you also have to simultaneously like accept that you have actual actually no control over the outcome, right? So the outcome will still be unknown, which doesn't mean that you can't also work to create something. It's a paradox, beautiful paradox. Um, but I think the same can be applied in our personal lives. And I've definitely been struggling a little bit over the past few weeks with a few different things that I'm not quite ready to, to talk about yet, but which I assume I will at some point. Um, but I think really like the, the crux of the issue or the root of these things that I've been experiencing are revealing themselves to be is around, you know, the difficulty of change, like the difficulty of growth and actually making a different decision and how much work that really is. I was doing an ask me anything on my Instagram stories on Thanksgiving and somebody asked me, if I missed anything about my pre-breakdown life, they called it, which I assume what they mean was pre-divorce, pre, you know, dark night of the soul craziness. They asked me if I missed anything about that time. And it was really nice to consider it truthfully and not to say no, because on the surface, like, no, I don't miss anything. I'm, I'm so grateful that I made those changes and I did what I needed to do in order to have the life that I have now. I have zero regrets and I wouldn't change anything. But sometimes I still kind of like miss, I, you know, what I said in response to this question on Instagram was that sometimes I still miss the ideals that I created for myself during that time, especially in regard to relationships. So there are these fantasies and projections that I had about these relationships that I was in at the time, which weren't, you know, quote unquote true, and yet, even though I know that, and even though those relationships have come to pass by now, and even though I'm fully aware of, of what those projections were in the past, it's like sometimes I still feel sadness and grief and regret about those things. And sometimes that actually feels like I miss it. I miss it. I miss the people. I miss that time. It's not really that I miss it, but that's sort of how it shows up in a way. And I'm having this weird experience of encountering things that I've encountered in the past, 
ways that people behave, ways that people interact, things that in the past really fucked me up, um, things that really like derailed me. And, you know, I was derailed because I didn't really have any tools, not only to cope with what was happening, but I didn't have any tools or support to even understand what was going on or understand why I was triggered or reactive or feeling the way that I was feeling. And now that I see these sort of similar events transpire, I can see how different my reaction is. Maybe not right away. <laughs> Maybe I'm triggered and um, really hurt. And, and that's true, right? Like the feeling is still there. The trigger is still there. The sort of stuff that it brings up is still there. And yet I feel like I have more control to navigate those things and to manage those things. And I guess in sort of re-experiencing things that I used to experience in the past that were really upsetting now with new, tool, with new tools and new perspectives, I don't know, I'm sort of struck by a couple of different things. One of them is how fucked up it is <laughs> that I went for so long and that so many of us go for so long without like the tools and support to help us navigate hardship. I just can't believe that I lived so long without those things. And of course I was so sick and of course I was so unhappy and of course I was so afraid and lonely and confused. And also I'm struck by how difficult these things really are to manage, like learning these skills, you know, just like I was talking about at the beginning around still navigating my lingering perfectionism, like it really, the shit takes effort to grow and to change takes immense effort and consciousness and responsibility and awareness and all of these things. And I don't miss being naive to that. Like, I really don't. That's definitely not something I miss. I feel like I hear people say that sometimes, like they miss the naivete or the like idealism of the pre-breakdown period. And I don't, uh, because while I may have not been doing as much work to be conscious about managing and taking, you know, managing my hardships and taking care of myself, I was working so hard at ignoring myself and uh, disregarding my intuition. Um, so it's not as though life felt easy. I was exhausted and spending so much time and energy running away from myself and... I feel like I might be spending just as much time and energy running toward myself now, but that feels way better. That is a destination I would much rather reach. But I guess I just wanted to honor that, the struggle. That's the word, the struggle. I, wanna, I wanted to honor the struggle, whether that's envisioning a, def, a different transformed future for ourselves personally or collectively. This is difficult stuff. Um, and I feel like once in a while, I just want to name that. A lot more to say. I'll save it for my next episode, which will be a solo episode. 
um, maybe the next one or maybe the next one after that. (laughs) I recorded an episode with a guy who lives nomadically on horseback, which I feel like would be a good juxtaposition to today's episode, which is all about cities. (laughs) Like, Let's talk about the future of cities or, um, the future of living nomadically on horseback. This is an, this is an equal opportunity podcast. Um, but yeah, super interesting to reflect on both things. I think I'm, I'm really grateful for the conversation that you're going to hear today. I think it actually um, was, it challenged me in some ways because we spoke a lot about cities and because I have such disdain for cities and modernity, Um, but it was really lovely to speak with Johanna and I think she's doing really interesting work and I agree with her about so many different things and um, yeah, it was really nice to find her and have this conversation with her, especially because it, it, it challenged me and made me um, sort of reconsider how regardless of whether or not I you know like or dislike cities or think they're good or bad um, does not mean they won't exist and so let's use the the resources and the ideas and the creativity we have to think about ways that we can improve upon them so uh, what else do I have to talk about so again yes if you are in Anywhere near Crestone, Colorado in December or January, I will be teaching CBC classes. Please reach out uh, wherever you follow me. Email anyakotz at gmail.com or on Instagram at anya.kotz and let me know you want to come and I'll share those details with you. Also, just a reminder, our book club for November is coming to a close. We read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard and we're going to be meeting on Wednesday, uh, November let me get this date right. Wednesday, November 30th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time to 7.30 p.m. Mountain Time. If you've read the book in the past or during the book club and you'd like to attend but you don't have the information, um, please also reach out to me and let me know or comment on this post on Substack, however you get this information or however you like to communicate. I did just send out the Zoom link and all of the details for that last night, though, so you should see that in your inbox if you subscribe to the book club newsletter on Substack. We are going to be reading Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson in December, which I'm stoked about. Maren Morgan of Death in the Garden, who's been on the podcast before. If you don't know about Death in the Garden, look it up now. Stop everything you're doing. Um, They are creating a really amazing project about about ecology and agriculture, which is a very broad way to describe it, but the way they're approaching it is really legit. So, uh, and their project is all about about death and embracing death and grief. And um, so it feels totally appropriate that Marin would join us for December to help me co-host the book club and read Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson, which is super exciting. Um, I mentioned Substack. If you're not subscribed on Substack, um, anyakots.substack.com is where you can do that. I'm releasing lots of additional content that is very relevant to the podcast on Substack now. So writing, poetry, um, sending out columns of inspiration, organizing the book club, all of these sort of community things, which are also going to increase in the coming months, are all being organized through Substack. Um, So if you go to anyakots.substack.com, you can subscribe for free. You get access to everything for free. If you do have the money to donate and you find this content valuable, it is much appreciated, but this is in is open to everyone, regardless of whether or not you can afford it. So all of that good stuff is on Substack. Hope to see you there. You can also share your comments and thoughts on every episode. There's actually a comment section, which is really cool. And you get notified every time I release a new episode like this one. Okay, I am going to play you in today with the fear 
by Ben Howard. The two songs that I'm playing today, I think, are like self-improvement, like anthem-y type songs. Um, I think going back to what I was talking about in terms of like the struggle and the work, sometimes I feel like you just have to like stand up and shake your body around and like fist pump. And it's a fight song. That's really what it is. More than an anthem. This is a self-improvement fight song episode. Um, Because that's how I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling like sometimes you just really need to like fight for the change and fight through the challenges with grace and respect and self-compassion. So uh, enjoy the song, enjoy this conversation, and I will catch you on the other side.
Okay, I am here with Joanna, and I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. A big uh, a big topic on this podcast, and I guess really just an interest of mine is this correlation between um, like what is tangible and what is imaginative and what are sort of like the outer limits of possibility when it comes to creating something tangibly. Um, So your approach to this work through urban planning, through um, architecture and design, I think is super interesting and um, a specific way of looking at this topic that I think is really important and inspiring. So yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Me too. I'm so glad that this worked out. Yeah. So I guess I love the title of your book, Speculative Futures. I guess this might be a term that's more well known in the spaces in which you traverse. Um, I had not heard this term before, though, and I thought it was really interesting um, even before I started reading the book. Uh, So I'd love to maybe start there with you really talking about like what does speculative futures mean? Um, maybe both more broadly, but then specifically how you're approaching it in your book. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just want to interject that when I was telling my mom that I was writing this book, she was like, speculative futures, are you talking about finance? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I think that the term and the definition, it means a lot of different things or people can imagine a lot of different things on it. The way that I use it is in the larger field of how it's applied in disciplines like film, like architecture, like you were saying, different kinds of design, industrial design. And it's basically ways of creating high resolution visions and prototypes of potential futures. So it's an array of design approaches and storytelling tactics for doing that, for envisioning what is not necessarily here, and then translating that into some sort of a form that you can experience in the moment. So one of them definitely uses science fiction. It's called science fiction prototyping. A pretty well-known example of it is Star Trek. Mm. Right. It's a show that came on, you know, originally in the 60s, culty people have loved it for generations. And it's also a forum for, you know, in the early days, especially prototyping the use of tools that we now use on the daily, like tablet computers, devices that translate language as it's being spoken, were all shown on the show in early form, but they just contextualize them as part of the narrative of daily life on that show. So science fiction prototyping is one of literally just prototyping using narrative forms, things that don't yet exist. And I mean, that show has been hugely influential in a lot of ways, but arguably, you know, the people who became designers in areas like Silicon Valley or other design and technological centers, they saw that show and they're like, let's make that. So it's also a practice of really refining and testing out and saying what works about this and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Some speculative features are very much more on the experiential side. It's all about, you know, activating your senses of smell, touch, sound, so that you can create a space or sometimes a virtual reality environment of what a potential future might be. So really trying to contextualize it within what some of these potential changes mean for our daily life. Like, can we create a living room? You know, I had a project that was set in the year 2200 and it was a living room that you could rent in whatever version of Airbnb exists 200 years from now. So it's like, what are the objects that would be in that space? What would you see when you look out the windows? So really trying to make it experiential and in that way personal. Because, 
Yeah, I think when we can really relate on a personal level to what happens either in the near future or the longer term, we're a lot more motivated, I think, and inspired and feel more agency about what we might prefer to see and the steps that we can take and the conversations we can have to envision what we might prefer instead. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what, how, what is your background and how, how did you sort of engage with this concept in your work and, and um, using it as the basis for this book? Yeah. Um, for me, you know, I'm trained as a landscape architect and an urban planner. And even before that, I did a lot of research on coral reefs and different kinds of coastal communities. So mm-hmm. I was getting into aspects of climate change and displacement, you know, around 20 years ago. So when I saw those things happening, it was like, how can we be proactive and engaging with this stuff? Mm-hmm. Because I think in the early 2000s, especially, it was still very much a conversation that was like, maybe it's happening, maybe it's not for sure, but it, like it's happening in places that are far away. Right. Um, but I was seeing in these places, I spent a lot of time in Polynesia, different coastal areas that are pretty low lying. Everyone was like, no, this is very real. We are very much dealing with it. Um, and so that for me was a lot of inspiration and like, oh, right, we need to make these things personal when we're, they're actually affecting us in our families, our neighborhoods, our daily lives. That's where we feel a different sort of inspiration to take action. So I went back to school for graduate school training in yeah landscape and urban design and urban planning. And when I got out of that training process and I went into the professional world, I found that there's people who are doing amazing work. And because design and largely is a service industry, you are also looking for highly paying clients oftentimes. Mm. And those highly paying clients often don't really want to focus on, you know, community building and different aspects of ecological restoration. They're really trying to use design for many different reasons that are a lot more, you know, not great for all of us. So I was getting frustrated in my professional work, working in more traditional offices and firms because yeah, we're dealing with so many very serious problems today. So I started doing kind of art installations and different smaller projects on the side that were really about me asking, all right, what does it take to create spaces where we can collectively sit with a lot of the impacts that are intensifying and create spaces to collaboratively envision what we might prefer in response? Mm -hmm. So I kind of started practicing with speculative futures approaches by accident, really just because I was trying to find different ways of doing design practice that weren't quite so focused on, you know, creating projects for yeah clients who are already doing pretty well it was much more about how can we create conversations about these changes that are coming in ways that are hopefully about co-creating a response that works for if not everyone at least a lot more of us and then I really came to understand that I was practicing stuff that was part of a much bigger field people have been doing futures work different aspects of speculative futures approaches for generations a better part of a century and arguably much longer So I started writing this book really as a way to contextualize the work that I had been doing 
learn more about the bigger field that it belongs to, understand more about the challenges, the opportunities that exist in doing this kind of work when we integrate the speculative process into how we can make cities more resilient, more proactive in how they embrace change and more equitable in how they're developed. So the book is kind of a synthesis of my own reflections on my own work, this larger context of research that it belongs to and different case studies to kind of compare and contrast how these projects can be implemented in different ways. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I've, I'm a good way through the book. Um, I I've always had this like strange, I mean, maybe it's not strange. You apparently have it too. And some others do, but I've always been very interested in space, like the physical tangible space. Um, and I spent, uh, undergrad learning a lot about uh, sexuality and we studied a lot around how physical space can sort of create these communities that were you know more stable and reciprocal and um, really about how the, the tangible space was you know instrumental and imperative in creating the community itself so um, do you find like I mean, this podcast is very much about thinking about the future and, and trying to figure out, you know, what it is that we can do, um, what it is that we should do, what what's possible. And, you know, I find myself always talking about or, you know, asking a lot more questions than giving actual answers. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear how you engage with that as well, because I'm sure, especially in your industry, like it's all about these specific outcomes. And here you are saying, well, let's just think about, you know, <laughs> let's imagine. And um, how does that like land and how does that work within this sort of a domain? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagination is the starting point, right? And then you have to translate it into work that yeah. is translated into the physical world. And so for me, like, it's more about sparking the fact that we all have this imaginative capacity and using that as an origin for wider and more possibility-oriented conversations. That said, when we get to the point of having hopefully some sort of a consensus, it still needs to be translated into steps that we can take to implement it in the real world. And I think that's where, you know, the urban planning and development fields is pretty good about finding ways to implement built projects. Like that's really what the whole deal in those professions is about. You take what doesn't exist, you refine it, you test it, you prototype it, you model it, and then you find ways to build it. That's also why it can take a really long time. But I think what I find really exciting about these different tools, these speculative futures approaches, is that if we can make the planning process, again, more collaborative by emphasizing the communication and the iteration aspects that speculative futures give us, it doesn't become just about let's all imagine and like tell stories about what's possible, even though that's a powerful forum. It's really about saying, let's create these prototypes, these visions of these potential futures in ways that are super high resolution and increasingly refined so that when we share them with each other, we can have a better forum for saying, that's, that works for me. No, that doesn't. I don't agree with that. Actually, I think that could be really great. This makes me think of this other thing. So really they're tools, I think, for creating shared language 
Hmm. When we're talking about collaborative spaces, whether we're doing those in digital forums, you and I are having a conversation right now that is on a certain level collaborative. It's in a virtual space, right? We also do those in physical spaces and the nature of the medium that we meet in definitely has a big impact on how we have conversations, right? Like when we talk to somebody on DMs on a social media app, it cultivates a really different kind of conversation than when we're doing that face-to-face in real life. I think what speculative futures tools can give us, and there's an array of options. So I think that's also something that can be a real asset to try and pick and choose what works given the space that we are in in a given moment and the people that we're in that space with. But when we're in these collaborative, you know, visioning conversation spaces, we oftentimes, you know, have an easier process with people who are similar to us, who maybe have the same values, who have similar backgrounds, who maybe look like us, right? That's kind of like a widespread human thing. And yet we live with a very wide range of people whose decisions impact us and us vice versa, our decisions impact them. So what I think can be really powerful about using these tools is that because they emphasize narrative, because they emphasize personal stories, because they oftentimes are about, you know, what do I smell when I go out of the door in the morning in this potential future situation? They give us a context that really emphasizes human stuff. It's not so much about like, you know, this infrastructural intervention needs to be this way because it's going to do yah, yah, yah for this kind of, you know, species. And even though that can be really important, it brings it down to the human level. Mm-hmm. What do I see when I walk down this pathway? What kind of activities could I maybe play here if I have kids with them? It makes them personal so that when we're exploring what these interventions or proposals might be, we can keep it in the human space so that we can have a different kind of debate with people who aren't necessarily necessarily like us like you bring together an engineer with like a you know community religious leader they're not going to have the same language to talk about building foundations but everyone can have an opinion about you know what they want to see when they go out of their doors in the morning so for me it's for sure about the visioning process but it's really about tools and mechanisms for refining the ways we talk to each other and thinking through the implications of our actions so that we can refine the decisions that we make in order to move towards trajectories that we would prefer to go to. So it's really kind of a multi-step process where this visioning of a potential future is a way of, you know, embracing the fact that the future is not determined. There's possibility there. So let's start in that Mm -hmm. place. Let's have some conversations about where we want to go, not just focus on the problems that exist now, which are of course many, but let's like accept the fact that those problems aren't guaranteed to last forever. And And then in identifying what a shared vision might be through this prototyping iteration refinement process that these tools can really give us, then we can start to backtrack to this present moment and identify the steps that we're trying to take, which is essentially what planning is all about. Yeah. You come up with a vision, you figure out a way to build it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and I think I would imagine, you know, part of what's so important about the vision piece and about the asking questions piece. Like I find we're so, and I know you talk about this in the book too, like we're very much stuck in our ways, right? We're limited um, or at least we think we're limited or we make assumptions about the fact that we're limited based on what we've seen thus far. Um, I, I feel like I've been called an idealist 
a lot. And I think there's a good and bad or like positive and negative aspect of that because of course, like, you know, any, anything that comes into tangible form started as an idea and as someone's imagination. But I wonder like, you know, maybe part of the problem is, is more of a sort of like psychological or cultural societal problem is that I wonder how much we trust that vision um, mm-hmm. that it's even possible and how frequently do we just say like, oh, well, that's never going to work because, you know, we, we've never seen it happen before because here are all the things standing in our way and, you know, bureaucracy, blah, 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 blah. Totally. Status yeah. quo thinking is status quo because change is scary, right? It can yeah. be really alarming to not even just think about changing stuff in our own personal life, but yeah, like the intractable systems that have created a lot of the issues that we're facing today, right? Like they're massive and it's easy to believe, I think that there's nothing that can be done to change them. And I'm not here to say like, use these speculative futures tools and it's all gonna be better because these systemic issues are very serious and really intricately entwined and supported by a lot of super powerful forces. That said, I think accepting that dystopian demise is our only way forward is for sure limited thinking. And so what I think speculative futures approaches are really good at doing is helping us just like challenge that, like poke at it a little bit. Sometimes they can do it humorously. You know, if we're going back to the um, Star Trek example, The other stuff that that show showed, not just technological innovation, was a much more racially progressive and gender equal future than what was going on at the time when it first came on in the 60s. Like, why not? So I think what these tools are helpful in doing is really having this essential two-step process, which is what if and why not? What if we allowed ourselves just for a moment to imagine something that is preferable, is better, is more just, creates safety? emphasizes, you know, physical and mental well-being. Why not? Like, and I think that why not is, again, like the moving back to the present moment and identifying different action steps that we can take as individuals and definitely as collective societies. And it's hard work, right? And I think that's also where it's critical to appreciate that people have been doing this essential community building work, essentially. for generations like nobody has given up this fight and I think that as a larger society and arguably as a larger human species like we have accepted this dystopian narrative that has been accelerating in part through our media right most movies that come out are pretty dark when they're focused on the future most fiction tv shows squid game was like such a popular tv show that's a really dark dystopian vision so I think when we absorb all of these messages that like the only way forward is going to be bad of course we're going to absorb that kind of thinking um there's another science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson who came out a couple years ago with a book you might have read if you know people who are listening haven't read it it's totally worth picking up Ministry of the Future and this is also a writer who's written his fair share of dark stuff. And he was finally like, let me try and see if I can do something more <laughs> positive. And he did what all yeah. fiction writers do, especially people focused in the sci-fi space, which is do a lot of research. He talks with a lot of experts for his books and then contextualizes it within a narrative that grounds it. And are they like, how would this work? It hasn't happened. This like isn't real. 
And yet, what would it take for that to actually translate? And what are the human ramifications of this going down? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not a perfect story in terms of like, there's plenty of sad things that happen. And yet it's also moving towards a future that like when it came out, a lot of people were like, this is the best nonfiction story I've ever read. Cause it's very grounded in the logistics of the kind of governance decisions that would right. need to happen in order for these changes to take place. And so, you know, different countries are taking his recommendations semi-seriously. There's a ministry of the future now. I think it's over in Wales. Mm-hmm. People have been inviting him all over the place just to tell us like what to do. And he's like, I'm a fiction writer. <laughs> you need ideas, like yeah. I have them. Yeah. So all of that is to say, like, we don't have to be Kim Stanley Robinson writing this like major sci-fi epic novel. He has a lot of reach because he's successful and famous for sure. But like, we all have the capacity to envision preferred, preferred trajectories. And then, you know, the action part, it's not easy. It's hard. It's like, it takes commitment. It's exhausting oftentimes. <laughs> and yet it's the starting place that we all have to, you know, take a deep breath and, begin again, over and over again. Yeah. And uh, you talk a lot about this, this idea of collaboration and cooperation and sort of bringing these sorts of things down to like the individual real human realm, right? And not a bunch of like execs or um, people who work in government or, you know, the people who are just in it for the money (laughs) sitting in rooms and making these decisions. But how does that work exactly? Like how... How do you suggest us as individual, you know, quote unquote, regular humans get involved in this sort of work? Like, what does that actually look like? Yeah. So, I mean, when I look at all of these different projects, I've got on my website a link to kind of like a very basic how-to guide. So if Mm. you want kind of like a more tactical step-by-step approach, I totally encourage you guys um, to look it up afterwards. It's johannahoffman.com and it's a link for the Speculative Futures book. But it's, you know, kind of a process that starts with engaging. Who do I want to work with? Who's around? Is it an existing organization? Is it maybe a smaller scale project that I'm just doing with my friends? Is it neighbors? Like think about the scale that makes sense, right? And like invest in those connections. And then you know, from there, starting to really articulate like what the research question is. And the research question is just another way of asking like, what if? What is the what if question that you want to address? Like, is it what if like all neighbors on my street just like had a really good way for sharing leftover food? (laughs) Maybe that's it. What if we did that? I think before you identify the what if question though, doing the work to collaboratively assess what you want the question to be with the people that you're working with is a critical part because that means that it's a shared question. It's not just one person going in with an idea. It's not just like a faction kind of saying like, this is what we're going to do. Because in a lot of ways, the ways that speculative futures work has been used in the past is oftentimes for persuasion. And when we try and persuade others oftentimes the benefits of the work are not going to be evenly distributed. So coming up with those what if questions in a way that is inherently much more collaborative is also a way of guaranteeing that the work can live on over time. 
So then once you identify that what if question, going on and starting to do research. All right, if the what if question is like, what if we share all of our leftover food? You want to understand like, how much does each person kind of waste every day? And what kind of foods do they eat? And is everyone vegan? Are we going to be vegan in like the next five years, the next 20 years? What food do we prefer? Are we trying to grow more food? Just like really getting into the nitty gritty of what we're trying to understand about food systems, what we're trying to do in terms of what works for people in their schedules. And then once we start to do like just the assessment, the research, the exploration, starting to then envision, what is this vision that we might be moving towards? Does this mean that there's like a central table that people bring their food to once a week? Is there like a common shared refrigerator? Just like getting pretty tactical and then using some sort of a visualization or sketches or, you know, short written up whatevers to send kind of prototype what you're talking about. And then refine, iterate. What do you think of this idea? Do you want to change it? Is this okay with you? What does this make you think of? What would you prefer? And I think that feedback, that iteration process, you visualize, you assess, you visualize again, based on the feedback, you assess. So it's kind of like a back and forth process. Mm. And then once you get to a certain level of consensus, because it's never going to be perfect, right? Then you start to enact it. What are the steps that we would have to take in order to build that? So you might think because it's about like, how do you work with your neighbors in the present moment in order to share food, that it's not a speculative futures thing. But the thing that I really love about this work is it's basically about prototyping potential realities. So it can be super far in the future, 500 years, 1000. Some people use this work to do like 10,000 year visioning in order to deal with nuclear waste. But it's also just about you know, the future is tomorrow as well. How can I prototype something that is actionable enough and feels tactile enough in order to make steps that I can achieve it in like the very, very near future. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love if you could give, I know I'm sure there's a ton of examples and I know you um, spoke about a bunch of them in the book, but sort of give an example of a project like this that either you've worked on or that was inspirational to you. Um, because I feel like yeah, like it would be helpful for people to understand the sort of breadth of possibility of what we're speaking about. Um, not that your one example will <laughs> encapsulate the breadth of possibility, but I do think that often- Not everyone people... wants to share their leftovers <laughs> with their neighbors. Like yeah. Their <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, something like that, you know, actually happened that was sort of um, really indicative of these themes that you okay. discussed. Yeah, so I'll share two examples. Um, they both appear in the book. One of them was a project called Anaeroba and it was funded by the European Climate Foundation. And they were doing a report that was trying to figure out how to basically reduce um, carbon emissions in their energy systems. So they started off doing a lot of research, just what's going on with our energy systems. And they found to nobody's surprise that it was a really inefficient setup because a lot of their solar power is focused in areas where it's super dark, like Germany. And a lot of their wind power is focused in areas where it gets a lot of sun and there's not a lot of wind. Yeah. So they came up, they hired this architecture firm, OMA, uh, to basically come up with like a speculative design proposal for what if they did it differently and how many emissions reductions could they achieve in doing it differently. And OMA came up with this 
kind of like silly provocative scheme, which they called Eneropa. And it was as if the entire European Union, this was back in 2010, so the UK was also a part of it, mm. had all of their political boundaries dissolved and all of their states were renamed things like Hydropia, which was the place where all of the hydropower comes from. So all the new boundaries were basically mm. defined by the kind of renewable energy that each place could harvest. They were mm. connected by the centralized energy grid. And under the scheme, and they worked with a bunch of different engineers and scientists to make sure that the numbers were real, lowered emissions levels to 80% below 1990 levels, which is a pretty massive reduction. None of it was meant to be real because like the idea that the entire European Union would dissolve all their boundaries and rename states like Solaria is (laughs) obviously far-fetched. But it was done in this provocative way, again, like the future being this possibility space. And then by exploring it as this possibility space, they identified different action steps to achieve some of these larger ambitious goals that did end up influencing actual policy. So again, it's like, what can the future be? What if we achieved massive reduction levels? And then moving back to the present moment in order to identify action steps to do so. Another one that's a little bit smaller scale that I find really inspiring comes from a community in South Central LA called Lemur Park. Um, They worked with some students at the University of um, Southern California to basically envision how emerging technologies like augmented reality and autonomous transit could be used to support the community who has been there because Lemur Park is facing a lot of gentrification and displacement issues. So people were really trying to say like, what does it take for us to thrive here in coming years? What if these emerging tools can really support our long-standing presence and our vitality over time? So they use the speculative process to envision what a longer term future, I think they went up to 2030 might be for the neighborhood. They did this work in like 2014 to 2019 and they prototyped a vision called Sankofa City. They had like a name and there was a whole identity and they got really detailed in terms of what it could look like on the ground. They shared it at local planning commission meetings and through that work they identified some different action steps, one of which was to start to prototype autonomous transit as public transit options. And then they got some federal funding and they're starting to go forward with that work and using the process of skill building for different local youth. Mm -hmm. So again, like visioning what could be for sure, doing it in a way where it's not as if it's all guaranteed to happen, but you have to start somewhere. And because that work was so grounded in, it was really spearheaded by one particular guy, Ben Caldwell, has been doing work in Lemur Park since the 1970s. He is a community linchpin. So really working with people who are grounded in the places where they live, committed to pushing things forward. Key, again, like what's the first step of this work? It's like engage, engage with the people around you. So that when, you know, this visioning process comes to at least one cycle of fruition, it moves forward. Because, you know, to go back to your, one of your earlier questions about this imaginative process, like all cities are works in progress, right? Like one project gets implemented and it's going to change over time. And so I think seeing the speculative futures work and these tool sets as opportunities to continually iterate and refine what we want to see. You do one project, you see what worked, you refine it. And then the next project, you're hopefully going to learn a little bit more and keep on going. 
So it's also, I think about just getting energized for the process as well. Like making change can be so exciting and it's also really scary and it's also really exhausting. So how to give ourselves that space, you know, of like play and possibility. One of the things that I loved in writing and researching this book was to really get into the research that occurs around play. Like all kids do it. We all grew up just playing. Yeah. And what people find is that when it comes to work, when it comes to definitely collaborative design and visioning, that play space is a really powerful way to not just, you know, come up with different creative ideas, but also to build trust with each other. There's a certain kind of, yeah, shared experience that we can start to develop with each other that can lead to trust and uh, stronger relationships over time. And that is the fruit that starts to build like stronger resilient systems. We can't build with each other unless we trust and hopefully respect each other. And having that play space as kind of an area to like at least temporarily set down some of our really difficult, challenging problems. It's not about forgetting them. It's not about pretending that they don't exist. It's about giving ourselves a little moment to share the possibility of what do we want to move towards? And then again, grounding it in the realities of today. There's another pretty cool project that happened in Japan. Japan has this movement that they call the Japan Future Design Movement. And they've been integrating it more into a lot of their governance and decision-making. And there was one project that I believe happened in 2017 it was focused in this one city called Matsumoto and they were renovating or working on renovating a local city hall. And so the local magistrate, the local governance system, they invited different community members to give their ideas on what they wanted to have happen at the city hall, but they divided them into two groups. And one of the groups was just people in the present moment. They, you know, represented all of their thoughts and feelings just as the people that they are. Mm -hmm. And then another group was focused on 2060 and they basically play acted as if they were people from the year 2060. They put on these special robes. It was kind of this like experiential futures thing where they inhabited, you know, their grandchildren or nieces or nephews or just younger people in the community as they would be in this future time frame. And so these two different groups said like basically what they wanted to see happen in this renovation work. And the people who were focused on this current moment, they're just being themselves now, you know, they did things that were relatively normal that you might expect. They wanted to improve like entranceways and paint walls and just make it like a better spot. People from 2060 were a lot more focused on how this renovation could serve like different social service groups and also be a place for like longer term learning about like different cultural aspects. They just kind of integrated it into its bigger thing. Mm -hmm. And then in the working back to the present moment, they were able to say like, okay, what is there a balance here? How do we achieve one over the other and have like a certain level of play and consensus? So we can integrate this approaches in a lot of different ways, but I think celebrating the fact that like play acting from the year 2060 can give us both a way of like challenging again, the kind of conventional thinking that you mentioned a little bit earlier, and also the possibilities of just like stronger, more playful connections with each other, which can lead to different kinds of not just creative thinking, but also modes of trust. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I, I would imagine that maybe part of what's standing in the way of engaging in the spaces of play and possibility, I think, especially maybe when it comes to thinking about cities in the future is obviously this big looming, uh, you know, potentially dystopian future, you know, that's, I would say very much not just, you know, a result of climate change, but also, you know, a lot of the sort of capitalistic systems that we're engaged in. Um, I, and your work focuses on cities. And I'm I'm curious to hear a bit more about why. I mean, obviously, we, you know, many people live in cities. I think you said maybe there was like 55% of all people. And it was um, estimated that like 70% of people would live in cities in the future. I forget the date specifically. We're urbanizing pretty fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess the question for me is like, you know, what is the possibility of reimagining or recreating or restructuring cities to accommodate um, new ideas that would be, I would say, necessary in order to keep the cities from descending into one of these more sort of like dystopian um, futures, right? Because I feel like if we keep going at the rate that we're going, um, we're not going to be able to fix things or adapt things. Um, so I'm curious how you engage with some of those more serious topics, you know, when it comes to sustainability and, um, you know, even the social aspect that you were talking about too, right? Like cities were never designed to uh, foster <laughs> community. And we have all these people like tucked into these little spaces right next to each other, but they're not necessarily interacting with one another. Um, and I'm, I read, uh, what's, I forget the author's name, Palaces for the People, uh, mm -hmm. a while back. Yeah, um, yeah Eric, that, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that book really focused, you know, on these ways that we need to bring people back together. Um, anyway, this is a long-winded, maybe nonsensical question, but I guess, like, how, why cities and how can we address the sort of issues that we see with cities, um, mm -hmm and engage uh, the process of speculative futures to, you know, both address these potential problems, you know, seriously and productively, but also not in a way that they become sort of like crushing and we don't really go anywhere or worse, we just keep doing the same things we're doing. Totally, um, totally. Yeah. yeah. Why cities, a lot of us live in them. We're urbanizing more as people are unfortunately going to be displaced by climate change more frequently, which is already happening, where are they mm -hmm. going to go? They're probably going to go to cities. So we've been living them for a long time, and we're probably going to be living in more of them in the future. Like there's so many billions of us. We have to go somewhere. Densifying is one way to do it. So I definitely think that cities are where we are going to be more of us. Um, in the coming decades. I do want to push back, though, on one of the things that you just said on the fact that cities are not made to bring people together. Cities have been made for lots of different reasons over the millennia, and some of them have totally been designed to bring people together for different reasons, of course. But I think there's such an amazing history, truly, of civic infrastructure that serves as gathering spaces. Think of like the water fountains and different aspects of Rome. Like that, mm -hmm. that was critical infrastructure and it was also like good gathering spaces. Obviously, you know, different people in Tenochtitlan in um, Mexico and what is now Mexico City, like they had massive gathering spaces, sometimes for ritual sacrifice, but it was definitely yeah. a reason for bringing people <laughs> together. 
So yeah. it's all about like why we choose to design the places that we do. And with Kleinenberg's book, a lot of what he focuses on is social infrastructure as a way for building community resilience. And he had this amazing um, assessment of, I'm going to give a very long winded winding response to your question. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> he had this really amazing research project. I think he was still a doctoral student, um, on the city of Chicago. Cause they had a horrible heat wave in 1995. Yeah. Lots of people died. And he studied these two neighborhoods who were in a similar area of the city that both had issues in terms of, you know, a lot of socioeconomic depression, a lot of, you know, just, it was a tougher area of the city in which to live. And yet they were really close to each other. And in one, a lot less people died than in the other. And so he looked and tried to compare like what was different about these places. And basically he found that in the one where less people died, people knew each other. They had social resilience because they were connected and they were areas where there was a lot of commercial storefronts. So people were in a habit of kind of stopping in and saying, what's up? And so when this heat wave hit, a lot of older people, especially people in the neighborhood knew about them and they knew to like check up on them basically. Whereas in the other neighborhood, there wasn't this commercial center. And so there was just less of a way for people to get to know each other. Yeah. So when I think about the power of speculative futures in creating more resilient cities, I think a lot about its capacity to create resilience, because when we envision the future as individuals, we can definitely augment our own senses of agency and capacity, right? Like when I'm thinking of what the next five years can be, for sure, there's a lot of really messed up stuff that could occur. But when I think through how I might address those things when they Mm -hmm. happen, what might happen if I lose my job? What might happen if I get sick? Who would I call? Is there a hospital close by? So when those things occur, if they do, I have a plan in place and that can really help me feel more comfortable with, all right, like it would be hard, but like, I think I can handle it and this is what I would do. So that augments my personal agency. It's also a way of challenging status quo thinking. Do I want to go and take that decision or would I make this other one instead? When we do that work of envisioning together, again, using that play space, that possibility area, that capacity of creating shared language that can help us build resilience together. So when I think about how we can use these tools, a lot of it is when we are more specific about the futures that we want to see, we're a lot more equipped and armed to push for those kinds of changes and a lot more oftentimes empowered and motivated to start to make the changes that we want to see in our neighborhoods, in our cities, our communities right now. It does require us to be motivated to start to say, all right, like if I want to live in a city that has you know, maybe you're in a coastal place and rather than building seawalls in order to prevent against sea level rise, you want to have, you know, multifaceted infrastructure parks that also allow for recreation. And maybe there's areas for like growing seagrass as a certain kind of like new local food. And you want Mm -hmm. them to also be like a marine habitat. Like that's possible. If you want to see that in the next 30 years, what are different kinds of organizations who maybe are already doing that work in your area? How can you get involved with them, donate, start to create, you know, different initiatives that can start to push that work forward. So I think by the visioning process that we can go through, which again, is just one step of this work. Visioning is like step three, you know, like Mm -hmm. engage first, 
start to articulate the things that you want to see collectively, these what if questions with the people that you wanna work with, then get into your envisioning and evaluating process. What do you wanna see? Let's evaluate what works, what doesn't. And then you get into the enacting aspect later. But the visioning is just about integrating it into the larger planning work. So at the end of the day, this really does mean getting involved. How do we get involved in the places where we live? Find other people who maybe have similar questions to us and start to try and do that envisioning work together. It's also, I think, a factor of looking at challenges, not always just as challenges, but reframing our thinking about them. If we're always Mm. focusing on the problems, it's going to be really hard to identify potential solutions that deserve just as much, if not more energy. There's another project that I profile in the book, and it was based in this place called Agbag Bloshi, which is a town where a lot of our e-waste gets dumped. And so it goes through a lot of ecological devastation as a result. People there are really talented scrappers. And so they extract a lot of different metals, circuit boards, other systems to be repurposed and reused. These two really just motivated architects and designers started to work with this community to say, all right, can we use design to improve this situation at all? But one of the big things that they found in getting connected with the community there, because they took a very facilitation focused role, like they're architects and designers, but they're like, can we just be facilitators maybe for this process? They were good at getting funding, but they really tried to work with people who live there. These folks who have been in this community and neighborhood for a long time. So from the outside Agbog Bloshi, because it's a place where a lot of, again, ecological issues have arisen and the way that these scrappers do their work, a lot of people call it like, you know, hell, it's a wasteland, it's a hazard, it's a health crisis. In going and spending time with these people, these you know architects who were trying to be facilitators were like, it's also a pretty amazing circular economy. Like they're really good at making sure that things get repurposed, about finding new use, about making this circular system work. And they're really talented at prototyping and fabricating, like super talented at it. So you can look at it as this ecological hazard or you can look at it as this really remarkable economy that can be supported to maybe improve in certain ways, but it's not as if it's only just this really horrible situation. So I think reframing the way that we see issues that need to be addressed and really trying to augment and support the positive things that are happening is a big part of the work and the possibility and the excitement that's there. And that does mean getting involved, right? Let's not come in and say, there's a problem and we need to fix it. And then just exert our own perspective on the situation. We have to get time to engage with the people who are there with us and try again to identify what some of the issues can be addressed in this collaborative what if process. Like what if Agbog Bloshi was actually supported to enhance its circular economy capacity That's a different question than what if Agbog Bloshi wasn't an an ecological wasteland, you know? Mm -hmm. And so in this work, uh, these architects were able to help fundraise to, you know, develop with these different community members the idea of prototyping a makerspace. And so they found also ways to come up with different digital apps to help them sell their work. So it's really this co-created process. And I think for some people, they wouldn't necessarily identify that as a speculative futures process. Because again, it was more based 
in this alternative present. Like what if Agbog Bloshi had the tools to do things differently? But it totally was because they were prototyping this alternative approach to development. That again, wasn't so far off in the near or in the far off future. So when they integrated it to the present moment, found these action steps that they could take, it was still putting them on a very different trajectory without having to look that far from the now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense. I it reminds me of it. I lived in Amsterdam for a bit, and there's I feel like a lot of ways that they've been, or just the country in general, the Netherlands has been able to like reframe this relationship that they have with water, um, and yeah, really create some you know, really inspiring and creative and inspirational ways to like work with what exists as opposed to resisting it. Right. Which is, I think, I think it's a particularly, or at least maybe not exclusively, but an American problem. I think, um, I've seen like what you're talking about, the ways that cities bring people together. Like in Europe, I think it's a totally different thing than so many different um, cities in America, like I'm in LA right now. <laughs> it's definitely not a city that was designed, at least in its entirety, to bring people together. You know, well, like certain I, neighborhoods, certain neighborhoods for sure, for sure. Have it. Like if totally. you're staying in your neighborhood, you can find <laughs> yeah. some great spots. Just yeah, um, but I just I think it has to be intentional, and I think that's I'm I'm really happy to see that that's happening more now. Um, but I do think there was a period of time where, like you know especially with urban sprawl, like walking, (laughs) you know, you go off a highway or something and um, to some sort of area that's like not a city center and it's, you know, the crosswalks are so big and it's just totally not designed, you know, for pedestrians at all or for people interacting. And it feels so strange because you feel like when you're walking that you're in this like weird foreign land that was designed for like cars basically only. Um, But yeah, no, I appreciate your point. I think I think for me, it was just more about, you know, yeah, like how can we constructively act with intention around what it is that we're doing as opposed to, I think, what, you know, the ways that a lot of urban centers were designed in the past, which is that example you gave in Chicago too, right? Like some, these two areas that are so close together uh, as far as geography is concerned, but that are situated or um, designed in such a way that support people versus, you know, you might not know your neighbor, even though they're next to you or, you know, past right. people constantly yeah. that you well, don't know. Challenging conventional thinking, because I think in LA, one of the more exciting projects that has taken a really long time and a lot of community fostering and amazing, you know, advocacy to move forward is the uh, redevelopment of the LA river. Mm-hmm. Like, like so many rivers for sure in the United States and beyond, it was channelized because it was a lot easier to deal with if people didn't have to like give it space to flood or if it wasn't accessible. And there was one particular artist who, and I'm sure many other people had this thought, but he's definitely one of the ones who really pushed for it. I think it was even in the eighties, he started to be like, wait, this is amazing. Like fish still live here in certain places. People go fish, like what if, the LA River was a community resource. He started leaving tours that would, you know, kind of trace different aspects of its history. He started to activate it with different kinds of programming. So again, he totally did a speculative futures exercise, which is like, what if we approach the LA River in this really different way? And he did that work of 
planning and community building to really energize folks around this alternative trajectory for how it could develop. And he's really ushered it forward and brought in so many other people who he wanted to engage with Mm. and who have really taken on the work of pushing this redevelopment, this redesign, this new master plan that is moving forward incrementally, very slowly forward. So that's the work of planning, right? And I think what's such a great and you know, beautiful example of this particular way is like, it didn't come from a planning agency. It didn't come from some rich developer. Like most of the really good ideas don't. And I think that to me is the power of speculative futures. This one guy was super motivated to just like keep coming back to this one idea and he got other people really excited. That's not easy to do. And yet it is something that we all have the capacity to do. Mm-hmm. And so when we give ourselves the permission to look at something like a channelized river and be like, what if it wasn't channelized? And it was actually this resource that people could like walk down to the water and touch it and hang out by it and really engage with it in a different sort of way. That's something that we all have the capacity to do, but we don't always give ourselves the permission to ask. And we don't always feel the faith that when we have an idea, we will be able to push it forward or find other people who might have a similar idea. But I guarantee you, there must've been so many people walking by that river who were probably like, what if it wasn't so sad? (laughs) And if we took the time to really like entertain that what if idea and find the other people who might be thinking something similarly. And these days it is easier to find people who are interested in similar ideas than it was in the eighties because the internet for all of its bad sides is also really good at connecting us. So, you know, if we have a what if moment and we really give ourselves the opportunity to brainstorm what that might be, it's possible to find other people who are also interested and who maybe really want to start to push this stuff forward. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, like I talk a lot about stories on this podcast and narrative and mythology and how important it is for us to (laughs) to tell new stories, you know, both personally and collectively. And, you know, thinking about the LA River, for example, like I feel like there's a, you know, before we do anything to shift that project is like shifting the narrative or at least coming to terms with you know, the fact that it is sad, what, what has happened. Um, and I, I just, I wonder like how much of this work is around, you know, first sort of grappling with the grief of where we've ended up and like the, what we've accepted for so long and, you know, coming up with a new idea, like you mentioned how difficult change is. And I think change is so difficult because we have to sort of confront and process you know, what needs changing. Um, and that can feel like overwhelming. I, I think, especially when we think about the climate or these sort of macro, um, issues that affect us. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I 100% agree with that. A lot of times when I, you know, lead workshops, we'll start with kind of a, like sitting with our own deaths, just what is it like if we're talking about 20 years in the future, 30 years, 50 years, like how old will I be? Will my parents be gone? Will I still be alive? If I have kids, how old are they going to? So it's like a way of really meditating with our mortality and yeah, the fact that I won't be here forever. And I've also accepted things about the ways that things have to be that I don't always feel good about. Mm. And that's 
sad and it's scary. So I think sometimes of speculative future spaces that I make, a lot of times I'll make, you know, some sort of an experiential space or some sort of a fictional rendering. And it's kind of a place for like collective grief holding, just like you're saying, how can we hold these spaces for, you know, the potential impacts that have not yet occurred and also the things that have been really difficult about the past and hold that together. Because I think really giving ourselves the space to both reflect on that as individuals, but also hold that collectively and have containers to hold that, mm-hmm. like that's really powerful. And I think it's a place of, you know, openness and it can really gender a lot of like healthy vulnerability with which to sincerely say what else could be possible moving forward. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's not always easy to do. I think it takes facilitation that is definitely a skill set. I think that's also why as a designer and a planner, I think it's just as important to learn how to be a really good mediator, a good facilitator, because that's hard work. And I think people really know the difference between a space that is considerately and skillfully held and one that doesn't feel safe. And when we're talking about working with people who are coming from super different backgrounds and experiences, those spaces can be challenging. So finding ways to hold them and facilitate them in a way that helps people feel like this is a safe space to feel into what's possible. That's a big deal. And I think that's also why it can take time too. So yeah, I think feeling into that grief is a big part of just like sitting with what is and then giving ourselves hopefully the space over time to just like you're saying, shift the narratives that we've been telling ourselves for a long time. I'm doing some new research for some different projects and it's basically about kind of comparing and contrasting national mythologies about um, basically control and control of landscape and the different ways that that translates to urban spaces at different scales. And so it's hard to compare and contrast cultures because there's so many different reasons why they're shaped the way they are. Mm-hmm. We're referencing the Netherlands and because they've been low lying for so long and they have a really different ownership system, there's just a different kind of understanding about what land is and how you have to rely on other people in order to navigate it. In the United States, like private property is such a foundational narrative that we have here, which is not shared in the same way in so many other countries, even though private property exists, you know, in many parts of the world, it's not necessarily such a foundational core the way that it is here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think understanding where some of those narratives come from, and then for me thinking through how we can shift them, it's not obvious. And I don't think that there's going to be like a step-by-step process for like changing massive, you know, mythologies and narratives. And yet when we challenge on an individual level, and then when we scale this stuff up to work with our friends, families, communities, wider cities, that is the work of creating new narratives. And I think Mm -hmm. through that collaborative work, you know, through the beauty and the difficulty of it both, that's how we do start to push those bigger myths in different directions. Hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you find yourself sort of looking to uh, nature and ecology? Um, You know, when, when I think about reimagining cities, like, you know, I think I, I would imagine that it's both 
sort of coming up with new ideas for how to do things, but also sort of looking what looking at what existed like far in the past or what already exists maybe in nature for how things interact with each other in these sort of, you know, reciprocal and regenerative ways. Is that something that you've engaged in some of these projects? Like let's look to nature to see how this works. And, and, and then I would say also like, you know, how can we bring more of nature in the natural world into cities? Because I would have to imagine that you know, I've, there's so many kids who live in LA who have never been to the beach, you know, like there's such a disconnection between, you know, people, the collective and the natural world and, you know, how much of this, uh, like how important is it to look to re-engaging and reconnecting with nature? Yeah. Yeah. I think about this a lot. And one of the things that comes up for me often is, the fact that moving away from this human nature divide could be a really powerful shift. Like yeah. we are a part of nature. There's no difference, right? For sure. Some yeah. things are definitely spaces that we have manipulated a lot more, but I think of humans as, you know, kind of an extension of beavers. Beavers are like massive engineers of the places that they live in. And we are too, like we are intense engineers. So I think first, appreciating like for sure there are some areas that are a lot more wildernessy where humans mm -hmm. have impacted them a lot less definitely and yet at Los Angeles other big cities have a lot of landscape in them like they are landscape they're just human engineered landscapes mm -hmm. that said there are so many opportunities for creating much more space for not strictly human systems in cities, right? Like most cities, even in LA, have a lot of street trees. The distribution of those street trees has been very, you know, racially segregated. You can see, right, like in areas that have been historically black and brown, a lot less tree cover than in areas like Bel Air or, you know, Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. But they're still there, right? So we know that plants that different sorts of, you know, waterways, they have to flow through cities. And yet the ways to kind of integrate those into the wider city fabric, I think is looking at them like, you know, as critical infrastructure. That's one way to frame it, right? They have so many uses that are way beyond just what they do for us, right? Giving us shade, soothing us mentally. But I think, you know, framing them as essential infrastructure is one way to talk about them. We need trees, to cool us down, cool air. We need space for insects to thrive so that we can keep on pollinating plants. Like thinking like we're in this reciprocal system already. We just don't necessarily think of ourselves as part of the system. And I think that's been an inherently problematic outlook because it makes it as if we can survive without these systems. We can't. We are inherently dependent on how well they're doing and they're not doing that great, right? which means that we're not going to be doing that great. We're arguably not doing that great already. <laughs> so yeah. reintegrating ourselves psychologically in with the vitality of these systems. And I think that's what's happening to a certain extent with, you know, the LA River Master Plan. I think it's happening at different scales, but I agree with you. Like it's not happening fast enough, but I think one of the new narratives, and it's not new, it's pretty old. It's like reorienting ourselves within the reality that we're not separate from these systems. We are inherently tied to them. And so their well-being is our well-being. 
Yeah. Amen. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I hope that, you know, your book and others that are doing work like you, I, um, inspires people, I think, to sort of, um, I hope it inspires people to work locally and on their backyard. And I think it's maybe also as a result of the culture that at least I was raised in, that's like, think big and go to scale and all these really, you know, like big ideas that, um, here's how to solve the world's problems. And I totally, I've, I totally got caught up in that for a while. Like I'm going to create this, you know, specific kind of community that can be replicated across all these different, you know, cultures and, and landscapes. And it's like, no, no, that's not (laughs) how that works. Um, I was actually very influenced, you know, Theaster Gates. For sure. Yeah. Um, I saw his Ted talk, I don't know, maybe like six years ago at this point, but there was actually a piece at the very end, like after he gave this talk. And for those who don't know, I just recommend go listen or go watch the the TED talk. Yeah, um, what a what a human. Yeah, <laughs> um, but he's in uh, Chicago, and um, he sort of played an integral role in reimagining and redesigning these sort of abandoned spaces spaces in a specific neighborhood in Chicago. And I remember, I think there was someone like who was facilitating the talk, or at the end, they were asking him some questions, and you know, one of the people said, like, "What do you, you know, how can you see this?" how can you see what you did being replicated in other areas and other cities? And I, he just said like, I can't actually. And because of the work that I'm in, you know, investors are always asking about how am I going to go to scale and expand? And like, it's not possible, right? Like what I'm creating is in direct, um, is a direct reaction to and solution to the problems that exist here and now for the people that are here. Um, and I, that one little, you know, I think I got wind of this idea in other ways, but I remember that as a specific turning point for me, like really how important it is for us to think smaller um, and about our backyards and, and how that can be also empowering, right? Because like you or I are not going to fix all of Los Angeles or a country. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the whole issue. And Theaster Gates is trained as an urban planner. So that's also, I think, part of why he thinks about his art practice as community building. Um, Like you and I trying to fix all of Los Angeles's problems is going to replicate a lot of the problems and harms that urban planning has enacted over time. Narrow groups come up with ideas that are going to affect many other people. Usually there's a lot of bad impacts that happen as a result. So again, this whole aspect of co-creation I think is really dependent on people articulating what works for them so that they can come to that process of debate, deliberation, decision-making with other groups. And the more that we envision specifically what we want to see for ourselves, the more we can advocate and then debate, refine, envision what we can see with other people. So for sure, starting small, definitely. And then I think still remaining engaged with these bigger conversations, for sure, it's essential, it's fruitful. All of these different scales, the national down to you know my corner in my neighborhood, they're all connected, right? Mm-hmm. But we do have to start in places where, yeah, we know the people who are around there. We're familiar with the issues that need to be addressed. And we're hopefully also trying to make connections that will be around for a while. I think that's why a lot of people 
you know, find some of their earliest, this is not everybody, but in my experience, sometimes it's when people have kids and they start sending them to school, right? And then they start getting involved because like their kids' education, (laughs) which is totally real. And it's also kind of like the building blocks of, at least in this country, our civic decision-making. We're making decisions that really affect us on a personal level because it's our kids. Mm -hmm. So I think starting again at different scales, whether you have kids or not, you send them to school or you homeschool them. It's like, what are the things that you care about in your area? Mm -hmm. And starting there, there's another book that just came out. It's Ruha Benjamin's Viral Justice. And she's basically talking about a lot of small scale community advocacy building projects. And this is work that people have been doing ongoing like it's never stopped but again I think like you're saying we've been really prioritizing how do we scale the stuff how do we do the big solve there's no silver bullet I think that's what I'm coming to appreciate more and more speculative futures are not silver bullets they're tool sets they're not going to solve all the problems that we face in our cities their impact really depends on how they're harnessed and to what ends so there are ways for us to collaboratively envision and then refine those visions to the point of acting them out, translating them into reality. Like they're good tools. And yet the ways that we use them are going to dictate whether they have good or bad impacts. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I wonder too, if people feel sometimes, especially I think in this sort of um, political, social political climate, like you know, what right do I have to improve my space or to improve my neighborhood when so many people are struggling even more? And I I have a lot of like empathy and an understanding for that. Um, but if you just decide to do nothing as a result, <laughs> nothing, you know, and, and like how important it is, I think, to that our work you know, on a smaller scale can inspire others, right? Like Theoster's work in Chicago is what is hugely inspirational to me, even though that's not mm-hmm. the location or the exact nature of a project, pro- uh, project that I would ever do. But and I think there's people in Los Angeles who are also doing amazing work. Mark Bradford, yeah. um, he's kind of a colleague. Yeah, he's been doing art practice kind of around the same time as Theaster Gates, and he also has mm-hmm. a social practice, and it's based in Los Angeles. Um, I was working with an amazing organization, Common Ground, mm-hmm. in LA, yeah. um, LA Commons. They're doing such beautiful work. So it's like there's organizations all over the place who yeah. are focused and doing amazing things. And I think it's like identifying, again, the what-if questions that speak to us, seeing who else might be asking similar questions and getting involved for sure. Like there are so many different scales of inequity and different access to resources. And we all like still have energy, right? To put towards addressing issues that we care about. So I think it's not about going in and saying like, I have the answer and like, this is what we should do. It's like, how do we do this stuff together? Mm, Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Um, If you could tell uh, the listeners where to find more about you, uh, where to get this book, I'm not sure if it's out yet, but um, all the details about that. Oh, wow. Yay. (laughs) Congratulations. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So that, and then I also asked my guests if they could recommend a book or two that was really inspirational or sort of transforming for them in their lives. It can be about this topic, but it can also be broader if you'd like. Um, What would that be? And then oftentimes we read these books for a book club. So, yeah. 
Um, oh my God, when it comes to books, there's so many. <laughs> you know. um, if you haven't read Braiding Sweetgrass mm. by Robin Wall Kimmer, it's amazing. <laughs> that was actually the first wow. book that we did for our book club. I think that's probably like the most recommended book in the podcast, which I mean, I agree yeah. with. I yeah. think it's like yeah. a Bible, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did. Yeah. Bruja Benjamin's book. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Viral Justice. I think it's so beautiful. Um Oh my God, I'm like really drawing a blank right now. I think okay. I've just been doing like so much about my own book. I'm like, well, let me go in with other, other information. <laughs> but I would also, you know, I think Eric Kleinenberg, not just his palaces for people, but a lot of his research on social resilience really informed a lot of the thinking that I put into this particular book. Um, when it comes to futures people, like, I quote so many of them in this book and they were just hugely helpful in framing what the practice is about. Mm -hmm. So I really recommend people like Stuart Candy. He doesn't have a particular book, but so many articles Mm -hmm. that are online and that are out there in the world. Um, Really fascinating to dive deeper if you're interested into just different studio practices, Um, just to see different examples of how people do this work in the world. I would really recommend studios like Superflex. Um, They're based out of London. Um, Yeah, different folks called Lodo. I have profiled some of their work in the book. Um, I have a lot of different design resources, again, which I link to on my website, which is johannahoffman.com. So there's a lot of additional information that you can find about speculative futures practice. Um, For me, I mean, the books that I also really love because you know, I love writing like narrative nonfiction in addition to some of these more academic things. I let, like, I think probably the most formative book in my entire life is true for a lot of other urban planners. It's Invisible Cities by mm-hmm. Italo Calvino. So it really just like gives permission to like imagine cities in totally different ways. So I would not turn to that book for any sort of like tactical yeah. ways of dealing with cities. <laughs> but again, just like really relishing in our imaginative space that we have these minds, these innate storytelling capacities that are just really remarkable. So that's part of it. And then a lot of people who have been writing about Afrofuturism, I think it's just such a like rich, powerful area. So if you haven't read like Octavia Butler, get in there. So just (laughs) really like, who are the people that were reading that help us articulate alternative futures? I would say the same thing about Ursula Le Guin, another Mm sci-fi writer. she, yeah, was really a remarkable voice in questioning status quo thinking and using stories to really say, like, what if we didn't have gender, you know? Yeah. What would that look like? Yeah. So, yeah, for sure, opportunities for thinking about cities differently, but also, you know, people who can invite us to come up with a bigger repertory of how we see what is possible. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful way of envisioning the alternative future, some more resilient trajectories that we can hopefully and definitely create together. My website again is johannahoffman.com. I'm on like LinkedIn and Instagram, um, Johanna Hoffman. I think Instagram is like Johanna E. Hoffman. And the book is Speculative Futures, Design Approaches to Navigate Change, Foster Resilience, and Co-Create the Cities that We Need. Awesome. Thank you so much again. This was great. Thank you, Anya. So much fun. So good. Hello again. Thank you for listening to that conversation. Uh, If you would like to join our community and participate in the book club and get access to all sorts of bonus content, 
Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot substack dot com is where to do that. It's totally free. You can sign up and join us for all sorts of fun stuff, including the book club, which our November book club is coming to an end. We're going to be meeting November 30th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time to discuss Pilgrim at Tinger Creek by Annie Dillard. And then in December, we are going to be reading Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson. If you'd like to join subscribe on Substack. And when you sign up, you'll see a little option to sign up for the book club in addition to the regular feed. And again, if you're going to be anywhere near Crestone, Colorado this winter or know anybody that is, I'm going to be teaching contact beyond contact classes. This is the dance and healing, um, uh, practice that I learned in Athens this past August. Um, I interviewed the founder van, and so you can scroll back a couple of episodes and listen to that if you'd like to learn more. Um, but I'm going to basically be teaching hopefully every Thursday over the winter. So if you're interested, please reach out to me, however is easiest for you. And I will send you the details about that. I'm going to play you out with another self-improvement fight song, um, called let me down easy by gang of youths. The song came on this morning, totally randomly. I didn't plan to play it for this episode, but I felt it was really appropriate and um, yeah, it was making me want to jump up and shake around and fist pump and fucking fight for the change, <laughs> fight for the change that I know is possible or hope is possible. Um, hope that if any of you are also struggling through anything that you're able to do so with grace and compassion, or if not grace, just compassion. You don't actually have to be grateful. It can be like messy and ugly. Um, That's totally fine. (laughs) That's what it looks like for me too. Um, But I do hope that whatever the journey looks like for you, that you're approaching it with some humor and (laughs) some deep breaths and some good music. Sending my love to you all. Until next time. Let me down.